0: Hey folks, this is Anatoly and you're listening to the Solana podcast. And today I have Jason with me who's a general partner at, at Spartan Capital. Awesome to have you.
1: Anatoly, good to talk to you again.
0: Yeah. So, I'm uh, especially excited to talk to you cuz you were like one of the first people that I talked to in crypto and that was I think 3 years ago at this point. So, feels like nothing has changed. <laughs> but I'd love to hear your story of how you got onto crypto and um how you actually got into Spartan Capital, one of the I think the coolest venture capital firms in crypto.
1: Yeah, thanks. It's pretty wild because I remember we were introduced by our mutual friend Bonnie from Five Hundred Startups, and it was she was basically she she shared with me the the initial white paper, and I think back then you guys were kind of going by the the tagline the NASDAQ for blockchains. And to be quite honest, in our first conversation when I had you on my podcast, I I maybe understood like half of what you said, and I really tried to like re-record certain questions so that I could frame it for for our listeners. But I think the kind of general understanding for what Solana could really bring didn't really hit me until maybe a while afterwards uh, when I kind of started studying deeper into the blockchain. And that kind of coincided with how I got into Spartan. Basically, I was working full time in New York as a consultant at that time. So nothing to do with blockchains. But I decided to kind of learn more about the space and really interview people like yourself and kind of scam people into coming onto the show so I can force them to give me tutorial lessons for like an hour just to kind of teach me what's going on. (laughs) Um, So I I did that for about a year um, and then I actually lost my visa at that time. So I had to go back to Hong Kong Um, and I thought that was a good time to kind of just go full time. Into crypto. um, And I just so happened to run into the guys at Spartan when they were spinning up a new fund. So I joined them as as a research analyst. And in the subsequent two, three years, I just basically helped them build up the fund. And we've been investing ever since. That's awesome,
0: man. For folks that don't know the story, 500 Startups was like where Salama started. And it's kind of like it's like a very dingy office. <laughs> it is a definition of dingy, I think, in San Francisco. Like, and it's kind of I think a good start for startups to have like a little bit of of discomfort <laughs> at the beginning. Yeah, uh, but it was a lot of fun. So I I guess I'd love to hear like what you guys saw in like the the two years leading up to I think this bull run. Because it, it feels like um, there's a lot of folks that are probably entering the space right now that don't understand like the real pain that everyone wants yeah. <laughs> for a very long time.
1: <laughs> yeah, we, we started in almost the depths of the bear market in 2018. So it was basically eating glass for like two years. And at that time, there was a real concern that crypto might not be around because we saw the excesses of 2017 and not a lot of things from 2017 actually remained. Um, So when I first got into crypto, as people remember, there were a lot of ICOs, a lot of random ideas. Um, DeFi really wasn't a thing. I think there were a lot of promising layer ones, but then nothing was really happening on them. But fast forward to kind of this cycle, we see, you know, almost $100 billion if you include uh, all the chains in terms of collateral locked in DeFi. You see actual activity happening not just on Ethereum, but on other chains. So there's something that's very palpably different about this cycle. Um, but in terms of kind of, you know, how we got to this bull run, I think it's just a lot of founders that are building throughout the bear market, right? So even on Ethereum, where we started deploying uh, into DeFi, you know, projects like Synthetics and Ethlend, Lend, which now goes by Aave, the founders basically just didn't care that it was a bear market and just kept building. And a lot of them started off, as completely different projects, right? So synthetic started off as a stablecoin project called Haven and they pivoted into this derivatives kind of synthetic trading exchange. Um, so I think there are a lot of stories where as the excesses of 2017 kind of subsided, it left behind a lot of remnants that were then picked up and reassembled into things that actually had users and actually had potential for this cycle. So I think that that's kind of how it started. How, how did you guys
0: separate the BS from like, the Keynes and stani's of the <laughs> world like because I remember that time and it was really hard to distinguish even for like founders like what was like a legitimate team and who wasn't
1: yeah i think that that's where we have the benefit of starting as a fundamentals fund first so we actually have two funds so the first fund was a fundamentals hedge fund so what that means is we look into what the traditional finance folks would call fundamental, so things like revenue, you know, users, you know, usage numbers or KPIs like that. Whereas for traditional venture firms, they would probably go even earlier in the life cycle and really just invest in an idea and a founder. So when we started, we had the benefit of kind of looking at data. So when we kind of surveyed the space, we realized that the only meaningful revenue that was being generated at that time was in DeFi. So people were actually going out of the way to pay like ridiculous gas to use horrible applications like, with horrible UX. <laughs> so that usually to us is a sign that okay, people care enough about these applications to like tolerate the horrible experience and pay these fees to actually use them. So there's something there. So that's kind of how we decided, okay, DeFi is quite interesting. And it started with Maker, which had the, by far the most usage at that time. Um, and then we kind of started branching out from there. And then this year, we started a venture fund. So I think that really builds on the experience that we had from the hedge fund, which allows us to kind of go earlier in the lifecycle, to not really require that much data and really kind of build on that intuition about what founders we want to be working with, what ideas we want to be investing in. But I, I, I got to admit, I think that the latter is actually a little bit harder because you need a lot more conviction about where you think the space is going and you definitely need a much deeper understanding of the space. So I think that the general impression that people have for VCs that, oh, it's just kind of allocating capital, throwing money around and seeing what sticks, that turns out to be very wrong. I think it, it's actually a bit more challenging than the than hedge fund side.
0: I, you know, honestly, I think people quite underestimate how hard it is to give somebody else money on like a handshake, basically, mm. like on the other side of the world. Yeah. <laughs> right, like it's 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 a very hard proposition and you have to really believe in the team or the person first and most of all. When you guys were looking at DeFi, this was really, I think it was pre-Maker, right? Like what, what was the intuition around Maker that you thought that that might be a real thing? Or like, what was the data that you guys actually saw? Because I think like, Ethereum daily active user numbers are still, you know, even today, like quite low compared to like a Silicon Valley fintech or social network.
1: Yeah. So I think there were a few things. Uh, number one was kind of just the most naive one, which is kind of uh, TVL. right? So total value locked in the system was growing. Um, And the other thing was the stability fees. So Maker was one of the first tokens to have some sort of value accrual mechanism. So rather than just a cryptocurrency, it burns a part of its supply based on interest that's charged from people borrowing money from the Maker system. So they call this a stability fee. So as an analyst at that time, there's actually something I can model where I can basically model out the rate of the burns and Build a discounted cash flow model and kind of figure out okay how much this thing might be worth in the future under certain assumptions. So that was really one of the very few projects where there was some basis for financial analysis. And then over time we started speaking to the team and we realized that there are some interesting tidbits of data as well. Like I think 50% of the users were using the Chinese language, the GUI, for for maker. So that that signaled to us that, okay, maybe half the users are from China. So there's a pretty global user base. And also the use case around Maker, I think initially they really wanted to bring their stablecoin to kind of emerging markets to kind of bank the unbanked. But as with most things in crypto, the initial batch of users were speculators. So by enabling kind of a trustless leverage, that was like a really easy to kind of understand use case for us. And that it was clear that it would take off. So we, we started looking into kind of similar projects that allowed other speculative use cases. So that's where things like Aave, synthetics came in.
0: You know, like... a all all those guys didn't start in trading as like being their main use case yeah <laughs> <laughs> did anyone foresee that being like the, the thing
1: yeah, I don't know.
0: Besides, of course, us, where we said it's we're, we're going to build NASDAQ.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys were like really clear, like from day one, what you guys want to do. And I I think in, in the beginning, everyone was talking about like banking the unbanked, right? Everyone wants to make these kind of stable coins and bring it to emerging markets. But it was clear that it wasn't ready for that. So I think it's for crypto, it almost always happens in kind of three waves. So for for DeFi, my, my thesis that I've been kind of toying around is that, In the beginning, in the first wave, it's all the speculators, right? it's all the degens, all the crypto natives that are bootstrapping the liquidity, that will be trading and levering up and doing whatever with these crypto crypto apps. And then the next wave, you bring in people who are slightly less crypto native, but kind of digital native, right? So these are the artists, the musicians, um, the designers, and you start to see them come in with the NFT wave. And then the final wave would be bridging it to the wider world, right? The, the retails or the emerging markets or the institutions. I think that wave is probably, you know, a few years out. I think a lot of projects are trying to build for those users right now um, in terms of, you know, stable coins for emerging markets in, cer- in terms of like tranche products for institutions. But so far, we haven't seen a lot of adoption there. So I think a lot of projects just kind of gravitate back to the first wave where the users are today. And yeah, I, I, I'm actually curious to hear about whether this was something that surprised you because obviously serum did a massive part in kind of, you know, bootstrapping a lot of the attention for Solana as well. And they're completely focused on trading. And I'm curious if that was like an intentional choice or was that something that surprised you?
0: Well, I mean, as a startup, there's a lot of stuff that's not intentional. You just kind of boil the ocean, so to speak. (laughs) Like, (laughs) taking every meeting you can talking to everybody you can and like giving the pitch right like that that was intentional right like me not sleeping for two years (laughs) but (laughs) but the accident was finding sam and like him like immediately recognizing okay there is something special here and that his vision kind of really well aligns with this like we can actually build this like censorship resistant price discovery engine for the entire globe and he was like okay i get that mm. like that's a cool thing let's go do it <laughs> That that was i think an accident but you know no there's no accidents right you just like kind of work at it and if any founder if any like folks that are like entrepreneurial listening to this it's it, like all those stupid books where they say it's like 99 percent work one one percent luck it's all true this <laughs> <laughs> is like you gotta like put in the work <laughs> when you think about like the next wave do you think the companies that are building this stuff now are the ones that are going to get there or do you think like you're going to see more mature companies be able to kind of capture that market like there is this always this kind of balance between do i build for current users and work on current product market fit or do i build for this like future thing that doesn't have a clear use case yet
1: Yeah, I think that's a really hard question because um, we saw how users are really fickle in crypto. There's no kind of brand loyalty or no kind of uh, product loyalty. Even in the DeFi summer wave of August 2020 to October 2020, uh, we saw a lot of new projects doing kind of vampire attacks on each other and stealing each other's liquidity. And there was really zero loyalty. So initially, my, my thought was that a lot of DeFi protocols would resemble kind of prime brokerages. So they would compete for collateral. And that's the only thing they'll compete on. And they would try to do this by vertically integrating and offering more and more services and trying to be aggregators. And you kind of see this with some projects, right? With like 0x, they started off as a pure kind of on-chain exchange. And then they launched Matcha, which is aggregating other exchanges. And you see this with 1inch as well. They started off as an aggregator and then they vertically integrated to their own AMM. And they're now doing their kind of like lending product. So you see a lot of projects trying to go this kind of vertical integration route. So I think the logical conclusion for that is a lot of that would start to actually look quite similar, maybe in like one one to three years, Yeah. Um, and they start to kind of compete with each other. So my kind of hypothesis is that a lot of these guys that are focusing only on crypto natives and DGEN users will eventually kind of vertically integrate to include those other waves of users. Um, and so far, I haven't seen evidence to kind of tell me otherwise, to tell me that there are... Kind of non-degen-focused projects that are bringing in a lot of users. I think the first signs of that might be in the NFT realm, but that that's still very early days. That's probably like three months old still. But wouldn't
0: the team that like kind of cracks the nut on getting 10 million people to use something? Wouldn't they just vertically build all the features that people want without like ever bothering to go like talk to One Inch or Ave?
1: Yeah, I think that's possible. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any examples of, of this kind of emerging. I guess uh, Terra is a really interesting example, right? Because they started with like, just, I, I remember doe wasn't even that, you know, convinced about DeFi when, when I was kind of first looking at the project, but they built this application that a lot of folks in Korea are using um, to pay. So there's this, there's this app called Chai and users didn't even know they're using uh, crypto they just know that hey if i use this to kind of shop online i can get a rebate but then what's interesting to me is they actually went the other way so they they started integrating back into crypto and built all these kind of dgem products right like mirror for synthetic trading um and anchor for for lending so i do think that in the short term if you want to bootstrap any type of attention or usage and really tap into the liquidity that crypto has created you kind of need to be a little bit degen. But in terms of, you know, the, the big opportunity, I think it, it's definitely outside of crypto.
0: Yeah. And to me, like, I think a lot of the founders, like Andre Stani, they realize that there there's almost no moats or like the moats are really like, they're really hard to keep. And I don't know what it is that keeps them. In a lot of ways, I kind of see some of these networks that do have some stickiness like Uniswap. And, and like, you know, the major like DeFi blue chips, as people call them, like maker, they have, I don't know if it's like the social network that's gluing them together, or, or the liquidity or the the trust that people built into those protocols. Like, do, do you guys imagine as a VC that people don't want to try another stablecoin because maker works and there's just technical risk there's there's just too much risk to go try something else
1: yeah i think there there's a few um, avenues where modes come from so integrations is one of them so sure these are all open source and you know all projects can plug into each other but i think there is, is a critical mass where If you integrate with enough projects and enough wallets, then people just stop bothering to kind of try new things. So DAI was like a great example of that, right? They are in basically every DeFi project. If they want to use a trusted stablecoin, they use DAI. So they have some sort of a moat there. And the security thing is also huge. I think there is a strong Lindy effect to DeFi where there's massive, massive risk to using very new products. Um, So people kind of just gravitate towards things that that has been around for a long time. Like I would be willing to put A lot of my savings into something like compound, but maybe not cream, which is, you know, relatively newer uh, until they they show more history. So that's another thing. And I I think that the the third and most most important thing, and you know this much better than I do, is that I I feel like innovation, the speed of innovation is probably the best mode, just how fast you can execute relative to your peers and your competitors.
0: So there's like this really uh, hard tension, right, between speed of innovation and this Lindy effect of like, something like Uniswap, you know, like Serum had three versions in six months, Um, (laughs) Uniswap. Like Serum is a much more complicated thing. Mm. It's like a central limit order book, like full style matching risk engine, like the whole shebang. And it took, you know, Uniswap many years to get to V3. So it's an interesting like dilemma. I'm curious if you think that that like may even break at some point, if new projects can get enough like proofs, security audits, like I don't, I don't know if like the industry can mature to a point where you can have releases of software that people can trust almost kind of from the bat, and that innovation kind of starts taking over.
1: Yeah, I think that that's such a hard problem, right? Because most of the bug bounties, I think, like the median size of the bug bounty that I see out there is hundred thousand dollars. Hackers basically can make you know hundreds of millions of dollars by exploiting these protocols. So why would they bother to go with these buck pounties? So I I, I've nev- I haven't never I've been able to think of a solution to that problem. I I, I don't know if, if you guys have thought about that as well, but just the fact that the TVL in DeFi, this honeypot is so massive relative to what any project is able to pay in terms of buck pounties. I think that's gonna be a huge incentive problem um, moving forward.
0: That has been quite surprising for me, I guess, uh, coming from Qualcomm, I kind of looked at the we mashed our bug bounties to Apple, so the, I think it might be like uh, five hundred thousand to the the largest one, mm-hmm. like a proof of theft of, theft of funds or something like that. Which to me is actually like seems kind of low because the risks are so high, right? Like you know, you know, Apple, it, it's similar, right? Like a trillion dollar company that had like a break into their trust zone that totally rooted every device in the world, that would have a lot of damage to them, to their market cap Right? Yeah, now. <laughs> that so low
1: relative to that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We, we live in a world where most of the folks with the skill level to pull that off would actually rather take the bug bounty than, than like live with this kind of like black mark for the rest of their life. <laughs> because, you know, all those people are, are like, Educated, they have careers, right? They, they have, there's like other, other things for them to do. <laughs> yeah, I think crypto in a lot of ways is pretty blessed in, in terms of like the, the folks that are in the space. What did you guys think of Faye?
1: Yeah, Faye is a really interesting one. Um, I don't think a lot of people read the docs before they, uh, quote unquote, aped into it. <laughs> they don't realize that there might be a penalty to withdraw your funds if the stablecoin is under PEC. They don't realize that. Uh, your, your capital might be locked up. So uh, I, I think it, it speaks more to the stage of the market we're in than the Fae project itself, that people are just, you know, aping into random random projects. Well, not random projects, but like any project without reading, without fully understanding the risks. Was
0: there um, an expectation of them to get that much TVL that quickly?
1: Um. I don't, I don't think they, I, I, I would be surprised if they were not surprised by, by how fast it grew. Um, okay. But then there's also precedent, right? If you look at things like Ampleforth, empty set dollars, these things are designed to basically be a proxy for human reflexivity, right? It's basically, people love trading these algo coins for some reason. Um, so they're known to attract huge amounts of capital in a short period of time. But uh, in terms of how much it actually attracted, I, I think that they're surprised because I think if, if you consider it a fundraise, it's probably the largest fundraise of this cycle. It's like a billion dollars or something.
0: Yeah, that, that's pretty insane. I mean, the TVLs don't necessarily, ch- uh, it's not like the capital can be used to go build Faye, right? Like, so it's a little different, yeah. but it, it is an absurd amount of funds moving into a protocol. Is this yield farming mechanic? Do you... I mean, like three months ago, literally Sam and I were like at a clubhouse talking about how this is, this yield farming is not sustainable. And yet here we are.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think there's, Um, I mean, yield farming itself is an idea. I think it's a great idea because it, it's basically just a method of distribution that's a little bit more active than your vanilla airdrop, right? But I think what's not sustainable is the kind of 10,000% APYs that you see on some of these projects, which just come from people bidding the governance tokens. And there are a lot of like tricky things that projects can do to jack up the APYs. So I, I agree. I don't think the so-called interest is here to stay. Um, and it's always misleading when they present these numbers as annualized numbers and they show you like you can get 500,000% returns by staking this coin. So that's definitely not sustainable. But I do think that, um, again, it's, I think it's a function of the market in a bull market, these, these yields will be there, but in a bear market, um, as the price for the coins in which the yields are denominated and come down, the yields will also start crashing. And we kind of had a little taste of that back in September, October, when the DeFi summer ended pretty brutally for a lot of people, when the curve prices started coming down. Uh, so I think a lot of people have short memories and they kind of forgot about that. And now they're you know back in forth again. <laughs>
0: All <laughs> right. So, uh, are you DJ Spartan? It might be <laughs>
1: yeah, I got, a lot, I got a lot of messages about that throughout the years. Um, so it, it's funny because, uh, they, I, I think people didn't realize that the Spartan and DJ Spartan refers to, uh, the synthetics community, which calls themselves Spartans. So some of my friends thought, okay, it might refer to like Spartan capital. Um, and we kind of post about the same projects in the t- same time zone um, so people started kind of putting one and one together, but no, i am I'm not Gen Spartan. I don't know if I'm flattered that people think I am, <laughs> but he, he seems like a fun guy. Like I speak to him, um, sometimes on Twitter. I don't know who he is though. Yeah.
0: I guess what what is behind the name Spartan for Spartan Capital? Why is that name important?
1: Yeah. So actually I, I didn't come up with that name. Um, the founders of Spartan did, uh, I think back in maybe like 2018 ish, early 2018 ish. I think they just kind of like the culture that they stand for. They, they're probably big fans of the movie 300 and they, and they like <laughs> the warrior culture. And I think we, we used to have this page on a website about the Spartan principles, which we took down, I think, because we thought it might seem a little bit extreme. But basically, it's like, you know, Spartans, you know, embrace challenge. They push push their minds and bodies to the limit. I thought it, it's a little on the nose, but, um, you know, it kind of embodies Kind of what we what we like to bring to the table when we work with founders, which is kind of we try to go to war for our founders so I, I think that that's really where the name comes from, but uh, yeah, it's nothing to do with synthetics or D Spartan. <laughs>
0: i I love like the, the two things you mentioned eating glass and going to war uh for for a founder those those are very much close to home to to us <laughs> um, <laughs> but we have like I always talk about like, that it's like the early adopters, like the devs, especially if they have vision, they'll, they're kind of willing to eat glass to get there. Mm. Like, it doesn't matter, you know, and like the early builders in Ethereum, I think ate a lot of glass to build these products. Like, I, I think there was a lot of blood, sweat and tears that went into building Ave into synthetics and like pivoting, like it's hard, right? Like experimenting on a new platform is really hard. Those folks, I think, are kind of cornerstone to what is really remarkable about, like, the Ethereum community. Do you guys see that, like, emerging anywhere else?
1: Emerging anywhere else? Um, in terms of uh, kind of projects becoming cornerstone,
0: like the the kind of founders that go like build these things. Do you see more more Spartans outside of Ethereum?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I guess. Um... I guess they kind of outside of Ethereum, but uh, this, this project that we found in, in Thailand called Alpha Finance Lab, they're building on both the Binance chain and Ethereum. And I think they're they they they're keen to kind of explore Solana as well. So I, I can actually introduce you guys after this, but um, they're an incredibly relentless team. So we, we found them and I think they kind of struggled to race at that time because they were proposing this idea about kind of levered yield farming. So it's kind of yield farming on steroids, but that was really only part of the vision. They really want to kind of going back to this idea about vertical integration, they want to build this whole suite of products across multiple chains for people to manage all their DeFi needs. So I think that vision wasn't really resonant with a lot of the early folks that they talked to in terms of investors. But right now, obviously, they're actually one of the larger projects in DeFi in terms of TVL and usage. And they're working with kind of Delphi to design a new token model. Um, And those guys are incredibly relentless. And I think my favorite story is when there was an inner protocol exploit. So th- they designed this thing where they can lend a capital to an uncollateralized basis or undercollateralized basis to cream. So it's like an inner protocol loan. And then that mechanism was exploited and there was a $30 million hole. So no user funds were lost, but basically the protocols were owing each other kind of $30 million. Um, so that was obviously a huge kind of setback for any founders. And, you know, for, for investors, it's not a fun day as well. You know, price are tanking. People are asking, you know, why, why did you kind of introduce me to this project? So there's a lot of you know, animosity those first few days. And there's a lot of accusations going around. Okay, who might be behind this hack? But the way the team handled it, it was incredibly professional, very kind of collected. It's almost like they've done this before. And the fact that they kind of came back from that and still kept on building new products I think is, is incredibly inspiring because, you know, we've seen so many projects that got hacked one time and then they basically just kind of gave up and fizzled out. So that to me is actually a kind of confidence inspiring sign. If, if, if the team can recover from something that should have killed them, that's usually a sign that I should be paying attention.
0: Yeah. That, that is a really good point to me. Like one of, one of those moments was like the double black swan, like last year, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, you saw this massive crash and Maker almost kind of going down, but the fact that they didn't to me was was kind of I think missed on a lot of people because I, I immediately thought, oh wow, this this whole thing actually survived. <laughs> this is like DeFi actually has legs.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's funny because that's how a lot of people got into crypto as well. Like when when I interview people on my podcast, you know, I think a few dozen of them really decided to spend more time on crypto because they first discovered Bitcoin and they thought it was going to die. They thought it's a Ponzi. Um, And then after the the price crash and a few years later, it came back and it's still around and it's bigger. And they started paying attention because of that. So yeah, I think the the rough heuristic that I use is if something should have died, but it didn't and it's grown after that, then it's usually a really, really good sign that it's probably going somewhere.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, you know, I'm sure you heard of like the $50 billion over leverage loss, right? And and like, um,
1: yeah,
0: like that is a bigger loss than all of DeFi, <laughs> like in, in one day from a trade fight group. It's one guy. <laughs> um, yeah, it's one dude that was just like <laughs> messing around, yeah, like in one day lost $50 billion. Um, I think that the stuff that um, we we're building, like that. The amazing folks that like Kane, like Stani are, are doing, those protocols as they get through the gauntlet of hacks and everything else, I think are a better form of finance where that, those kinds of things can't happen, right? You have like so much experience and so many people trying to hack it that you get through like this period of volatility, right? And yeah. <laughs> that you get to a point of anti-fragility and it's kind of interesting, how emergent these things are.
1: Yeah, and that that example about Bill Huang, that that um that family office slash hedge fund that you mentioned, it, it's crazy because he was borrowing from all these banks, and none of them knew that he was borrowing from all these banks. So it was incredibly intransparent. Nobody really knew what the risk exposure was until it was too late, until it blew up. Whereas for DeFi, you can monitor the collateral ratio for every single loan on chain. Um, so you know exactly what what's the risk that you're facing. So that, I think, is a massive improvement over the existing system. But unfortunately, you know, it's, well, I, I shouldn't say unfortunately, but it, it's still incredibly early. So m- most people still kind of perceive DeFi as fundamentally more risky than CFI or than uh, traditional finance. But um, Jeff Dorman from ARCA, which is a um, fund in the US, he actually wrote this great post about how DeFi is actually less risky than traditional finance because of those reasons that you mentioned, right? Because of all these hidden risks that you don't really realize until it's too late, until it blows up.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. I think to me this is like an obvious win, where like the use of blockchain it is like so painfully obvious as, as like the right technology. Do you trust banks more than like a hardware wallet?
1: Personally, I I actually don't, but maybe I'm a little bit more extreme. I I trust my ability to kind of custody. So I I have, I I think, well probably same for a lot of crypto, probably more funds in a hardware wallet than in my bank. And, you know, just my experience with even setting up a commercial bank account for for my podcast, it's horrendous. And I've heard so many stories about people whose bank accounts got frozen because they sent... They sent money from FTX back to their bank account. So uh, apparently, one way is okay. Like if you send money from your bank account to an exchange, usually they don't flag you. But if you send from an exchange back to a bank, they would probably freeze your account, um, and it takes like weeks to to unfreeze it. So my friend was basically stuck with no access to his bank account for like weeks, which is insane. So it, I think it's examples like that 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 makes me a little bit have a little bit less faith in in banks than uh, than kind of DeFi.
0: Yeah, those are. Um... I'm like seeing the change from at least like in the crypto community or like today, like we went from like a period of, of like the stuff barely working to it's mature enough for Coinbase to IPO. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, like we're, we're at the level where I think like the technology and like the actual stability of it is, is at the level that it's extremely sophisticated and robust, but we just haven't hit this like commercial scale yet. Mm where everybody understands how to custody is that like something that you guys kind of track, like as a fund, do you look at this kind of market of crypto as like the set of people that can custody, or do you think of it still in terms of like volumes and like TVLs and all this other stuff?
1: Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, I think in terms of what generates fees for protocols and token holders is the volume, right? So that's usually what we track the most. Uh, but in terms of custody solutions, you know, we pay a lot of attention to that. But I wouldn't say you know we're we're tracking it kind of quantitatively daily, um, but just anecdotally or qualitatively, seeing things like Argent uh, coming out right with their Guardian system, which makes it really easy for you to kind of spin up a wallet without worrying about kind of keeping your seat phrase in, on a piece of paper or locked under a mattress or something like that. Um, so I think it's 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 solutions like that. Um, that make us excited that we're seeing crypto come to a less crypto native user base. And recently I did an interview on, on a local podcast here in, in, in Hong Kong. And the host was actually sharing, the host is actually Bonnie. Um, so she's hosting a, a, a Cantonese podcast here and she was sharing with her users about crypto. And I think she actually brought a lot of people into crypto through Argent because it's so easy to use relative to you know, a ledger. So it's stories like that that make me really excited about the fact that this is just the first wave.
0: Do you think that adoption is gonna come from people understanding the cryptography, not like deep mathematical understanding, but kind of the same level that my parents understand, like clicking a link on a website. Like, do we need to get to that level of of like adoption where like my parents understand a public key at that depth? (laughs) They're like, oh, there's a secret, and I gotta hide it. Yeah. Right? like they can, they can, get that. Like, do we need that level of adoption, like worldwide?
1: I think um, you know we, we probably need some behavioral change. Um, just looking at the the Web two cycle, right back in the nineties, you know, th- ideas like uh, logins or like passwords weren't really a thing. But I think that was probably a little bit easier to understand than most of what's happening in crypto. But even on the fun side, I think. You know, in the very beginning, in, in like twenty seventeen or twenty sixteen, a lot of the funds investing in crypto are kind of very cryptography heavy, right? So these are all computer scientists or engineers. And then this cycle around you see a lot of more product folks who might not know how to code or might not understand deep level cryptography, but they have incredible product sense. They know how to kind of almost predict which what products would take off. So I kind of map that Uh, evolution of your typical fund analyst to your typical crypto user, where in the beginning, you have these hardcore people who uh, who don't even use the interface for these exchanges. They kind of just interact directly with the contracts. Then now you have folks who might not know how to, you know, might not have read the white paper for Bitcoin, but they know how to use Uniswap. So I do think there's a lot of abstraction that's happening and it will continue to happen. And specifically, do I think the average user will understand kind of public-private keys in the future? I don't think so. I think you start to see, again, going back to the example of Argent, it kind of abstracts away all of that for you. So there's elements of that way when you kind of spin up your wallet, you do have to kind of think about that. But then I think it's it's easy to see how this will all be abstracted for users in the future. So
0: I feel like there's like a clear distinction between users having this high level understanding of, of crypto versus a deep one. And like, I almost see like, AOL keywords. I don't know if you remember the '90s. AOL had these like instead of URLs and all this complicated link Mm -hmm. stuff, you just type in a keyword and you go to (laughs) go to the thing. (laughs) And that like failed miserably because I think people lost the actual like core cool part of the web, right? Like that you can build this like intricate set of like documentation links and kind of go down the rabbit hole. There was this brief moment of time where this magical rabbit hole could take you anywhere, right? Mm. <laughs> Was that, like, I, I feel like folks that try to abstract things too much in crypto, like almost end up in that like AOL keyboard, keyboard place. Mm,
1: as in kind of they they take away too much of what's kind of meaningful in crypto?
0: Exactly. Like, I, I think the cool thing about it is that with a bit of cryptography, I can go get yields on my dollars, nave that are, you know, a thousand times bigger than the bank, <laughs> right? Like,
1: Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I mean, I guess, um, you know, abstractions are very broad terms. It, ter- it, it kind of depends on what you're abstracting away. So for, so for things like Coinbase, you're abstracting away all the key management and custody. And obviously you give up that kind of self-custody and trustlessness aspect of it, but you could still access things like you know, Ave technically through through a centralized exchange, right? They could still take your assets and deposit. So I think you might give up some some kind of aspects of trustlessness, but the composability part should still be available to to kind of more abstracted applications, right?
0: Yeah, it, it, it's a it's a difficult question, right? Like I, I think we've seen a ton of uh, users go to Coinbase and Binance, you know, and FTX and all the other centralized exchanges for like. The trading, the speculative side of it, mm-hmm. but Binance smart chain. Do you think that that is like a mix of that kind of in between world? Like you still have to use MetaMask, right? And you're trading on Uniswap, or you're depositing like tokens into like the Binance smart chain farming products. Is that is that crypto? Is that is that like <laughs> close <laughs> enough?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's a really hard answer a question because. Obviously, Binance, you know, gives up a lot of the, I I think the security or the trustlessness aspect of something like Ethereum. But is that crypto? I think the best way to think about it is probably like a spectrum. There's like degrees of decentralization and trustlessness. So I, I definitely would not put kind of smart chain, you know, anywhere close to Ethereum. But there might be a market for that, right? I think it's clear that these DGENs, they don't really think about what's trustless. They don't, actually care too much if, if they can earn a yield, if there's products they can use, if they can trade with no fees, then they will go there. Um, so I think that goes back to the point about l- customer loyalty. I think the, the metrics by which loyalty is determined is very different for the early users of crypto. So the Ethereum maximalists who really care about the tenets uh, of Ethereum versus the users today where you have the DGENs who really don't give a shit at all. They kind of just go to whatever chains to give them the lowest fees and highest yields. So yeah, I don't know if that it is crypto, but there might there there, there is a market for it.
0: Yeah, these are hard questions. Like
1: yeah.
0: how, how much of the stuff is important versus like at, at some level I kind of believe that the self-custody piece is more important than anything else. Because I think like if you actually have my parents understanding self-custody, then they can move to any network. Right. They can hop from Binance Smart Chain to Ethereum to Solana to whatever. Right. That like I, I think like that initial onboarding is almost ninety-nine percent of the work.
1: How, how do you think we can um kind of get to the point where you know you're I guess like even my parents would understand kind of key management? Is is do you think we still have a huge leap before we can get there, or are we kind of almost there already?
0: I I think it's interesting that the speculative use case forces people to understand it because of the risks they're taking mm. like if if i'm taking like if i'm putting some skin in the game in this stable coin field farming scheme <laughs> <laughs> that <laughs> right i'm <laughs> there there's something actually there that's forcing me to understand what i'm doing and the risk i'm taking and how that's tied to those 12 keywords mm. The, the, that connection, I think, is really quickly established when the amount of value I put into that goes to zero or like 10x. Yeah. Just, it's just like, I think, immediately sinks into the, it sinks in. But I don't know if that is scalable to a population mm-hmm. that's much bigger than what we currently already onboarded in crypto. I, I don't know if we've like captured all the detents in the world already. We might have. Yeah.
1: Like, <laughs> Yeah, well, the DJ market is massive, right? I think, uh, especially in in, in um, places where gambling is outlawed, right? China has a huge market for DGMs. But I think, yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, speculation kind of forces people to to understand. Um, but then you also see, I'm actually curious what were you are seeing from projects like Audius building on Solana, because they're not as speculative use cases, but they also have a lot of kind of crypto-native aspects. Do you see kind of users being forced to understand crypto through Audius or have they abstracted so much of it away that people don't even know it's crypto?
0: I think people are, are excited that there's an Audius token and that it's decentralized music because there's always like, there's a different censorship resistant element there, which which I think is really interesting and like almost goes back to the days before crypto where like sharing a music Became like such a hot button thing that like you know Google ended up on the right side of the history and like Napster was on the wrong side of history, mm. even though all of them were, were like serving the same music. And <laughs> I think with Audius in, in the long term, there is this really like kind of genuine way to try to connect the artists and the fans without any of the middle people in between, mm. and and that's almost like the social networking part of, of like, you know, the veggie tokens, the stable coins, like building the community side of it. Like if you remove the speculative use case, you have this community of people that kind of came together on a meme or an idea or fandom or whatever, right? Like but that part I think is really, really cool. And I think crypto enhances it because it's got you know, like crypto has this property that no other social networking has, where I have to actually spend my dollars to be part of it. Like I have to go buy the audio token, right? Like I have to go buy the yams, right? Like, <laughs> I can't like be part of every network. There's civil resistance is baked into it. So that skin in the game actually creates, I think, stronger communities. It, it, it's much more interesting than, I think, building a social network of the same size.
1: Mm. Yeah that that's that also reminds me of a point that I wanted to make earlier uh, which is that speculation as you mentioned kind of forces a lot of people to learn crypto but then there are also other avenues that forces other demographics to learn crypto so music is probably one of them and then the other huge one was nfts right all these digital artists that didn't really give a shit about bitcoin or ethereum before like folks like beeple they're forced to learn what an nft is they're forced to kind of mint their own nfts because of the opportunity there so I guess they're the kind of a subset of speculators. But, you know, if you look at the general profile of people being pulled into crypto through NFTs and people who are pulled into crypto through Uniswap shitcoins, it's very, very different profiles. So I, I, I'm really excited to see different avenues pulling kind of different personalities into the space. And I can't figure out kind of what's going to be next after NFTs, but I'm sure there's something outside of, you know, just pure speculation.
0: Do you think that the NFT market is... Um like re- kind of resembles the high art market where you have like collectors or like it, like the whole thing around people, right. Is, it really seems like the Basquiat movie. Like <laughs> it's like this guy that's like awesome at digital art, that just got like promoted into this like thing. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's not what happened, but like, it, it seems very much like high art, like the story of like, like, you know, like the kind of art that like hits those same numbers at a Christie's auction.
1: Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, I wouldn't pretend to say that, well, first of all, I, I think NFTs as an idea, as an identity layer for basically anything, not just art is really powerful, but I do think the NFT art specific movement is basically just digitized high art, right? There, there, there's not nothing that besides the ownership aspect of it and the digitized aspect of it the underlying art is still the same the the, the market is still the same the auctions still held by you know the, the auctioneers so I personally you know I, I'm not putting money into crypto art just because I don't understand where the value is coming from I'm not as excited about the opportunity for the specific pieces of art I'm excited for the opportunity that seems to be giving to artists um but yeah I think there, there's a lot of same concerns that people bring up for uh, NFT art and high art, right? Like people are concerned that these things will be used for money laundering. People are concerned that most of the participants are just whales who have, you know, $60 million to throw around for a piece of art. Um, and it's not really um, that kind of broad base of a user base. So I think those are valid concerns that are shared by both.
0: Yeah, I, I've never been a part of like large scale art, like. but I've bought like art, but usually it's like, you know, 500 bucks would be the most that it's spent on something. Mm and there's a lot of artists just make money off that like i'm I'm trying to like imagine when would i be in a position to like spend a couple hundred bucks on an nft <laughs> like do do you like do, do you do you see yourself getting there like at some point
1: yeah i think that that's why um so i i did this uh two part podcast episode with the guys from one confirmation they're huge NFT fans and they're they're really, really insightful and forward thinking. And they, they actually um, helped me see the light on a lot of DeFi stuff. But we disagree on a lot of NFT stuff because I think their view is that NFT is more populist than DeFi, right? DeFi is very elitist. It's all these complex instruments, but then NFT is about art and community and all these things. But I actually disagree with that because as you mentioned, I think a lot of the largest sales or the or the highest volume of transactions is, is generated by the whales, right? Who can afford to pay $5,000 for a duck. And they'll be like, I'm okay with that. So <laughs> I don't think most people will get there. I, I still think that this resembles high art. So personally, you know, I'm not as involved in buying NFT art. Maybe one day I'll get there. But uh, for now, it's, it's not something that I, I, I'm very terribly excited by.
0: Yeah, th- I would love for the world to get there because I think having this like channel for artists, right? Like to get connected to their fans and to get effectively like, you know, funded, right? Like to actually go go continue like doing art full time would be awesome. But I'm not sure, I haven't like quite nailed it yet. Like I used to play, you know, like Ultima Online, EverQuest. And in those games, I noticed that as soon as you had enough people playing it, they kind of self-created economies. People would start selling just the gold was kind of the basic thing. Mm-hmm. Like whatever like the gold was in the game, people would get too much of it and sell it to people that didn't have enough of it. <laughs> and that, that was that was just obvious, right? Like that just happened naturally. Uh, there was like a black market it would establish. But there was also like other markets for like really rare items that not necessarily had any like impact or interest in the game outside of being rare. And I don't know where this phenomenon comes from, from people. Like, it seems like whenever we like start forming societies that we start collecting shiny objects. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think it's also a function of wealth. I think, you know, last cycle we saw NFTs kind of take off at the end of the cycle where a lot of wealth was already created in shitcoins coins and in kind of Bitcoin and people trickled a lot of their wealth into art. And I think uh, to a certain degree, it's kind of happening this cycle as well, where a lot of people got really rich off of other tokens um, and they started kind of divesting into art and it's kind of bootstrapped the emergence of this new market or this new economy. I I think what, what I am excited about for NFT art is the fact that you could create DeFi markets around this. So we're already seeing projects that create kind of appraisal markets for the value of NFTs or allow you to fractionalize your NFTs or even put your NFTs down as collateral to kind of take out loans. So compared to traditional high art, I think that frees up a lot of the value where, whereas usually it's basically just a piece of painting that's, you know, hanging in some billionaire's wall. Now you can digitize it and actually free up the value and create a new economy around that. So that probably is a little bit far out, but that's something that I think would excite me about art. Interesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, the fact that if these things have value and price discovery, you know, that you could actually like create markets for them. And if you have markets, you can do borrow lending, all, all of finance. Those mechanisms, I'm, I'm like curious how they'll kind of play out. I'm worried about like the proliferation of the number of items and kind of like the lack of liquidity to support all of them. And that seems like a black swan, not in just crypto, but like the, the rest of the world too. It's like just, I don't know like, you know, a lot of companies going public, a lot of aspects, mm. like the, the amount of stuff that you have to like market make and like do discovery on just keeps blowing up. There's 32,000 Uniswap pairs. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And Like if, if you start making markets for every like individual unique item, um, where's the liquidity going to come from for, for everything?
1: Yeah. So at some point it will become untenable. There will be too many Items and assets to be supported by the same pool of capital. I think that that's when the bubble bursts, right? So that, but then what we saw from twenty seventeen when the bubble subsided is it left behind all these key pieces. So um, I maybe at the end of the next cycle, or maybe at the end of this cycle, there won't be twenty two thousand pairs. Maybe, um, maybe like five thousand pairs remain, but all the others kind of die. But then the five thousand pairs that remain might go on to do kind of actually interesting use cases. But I agree. I I think there's definitely a concern that we're getting to a period of excess where there's way too many, way too many random pieces of NFTs just commanding hundreds of thousands of dollars in value today.
0: What are you guys excited about like as the next wave? Have you looked into DAOs or like um, kind of social networking or social coins?
1: Yeah. So I guess two things on that um, so DAOs, I do think everything is converging there because last cycle you, you saw a lot of coins talking about governance right so Tezos was all about governance ethereum's narrative was hugely dominated by governance as well and it, a huge part of my podcast was also about governance but there was nothing to govern um, whereas this cycle around there's there's I think there's like 50 billion in ethereum alone for TVL to be governed so it becomes a necessity. Um, So I've always debated, how would this play out, right? Is it going to be where every project is going to become their own DAO? Will there be some consensus around what DAO frameworks they will use? Like, will everyone be using like DAO stack or Aragon? I think the evidence is pointing towards the former where um, people are kind of just spinning up their own DAOs, maybe using pieces from here and there, like snapshot and whatnot. But there's no like consensus framework for how a DAO should look like or what key pieces it should be using. So I'm still looking for kind of how to express a view there. And for social tokens, I was actually one of the first guys to issue a token on on this app called Roll um, for for Block Crunch for the podcast. But I couldn't figure out a use case for it, so now it's just kind of sitting in my wallet doing nothing. <laughs> and I feel like that's going to be the outcome for a lot of social tokens, where people can't figure out the use case for it. But then I saw Bitcloud this kind of new project that's issuing a social token for everyone, sometimes without their permission. Um, And people still seem to use it, especially non-crypto natives. I'm hearing so many stories from people who are just really excited about the fact that they can buy tokens for their favorite creators, even though there's no use case for the token. Um, So maybe you don't need a use case. Maybe it's just the meme around the token. Um, But yeah, these two are things that I'm definitely paying attention to a lot and I'm still trying to wrap my head around. Cool.
0: Very cool. Like me too. Like these are I think like really fascinating things that have come out in the in this cycle in like the last couple of months. This has been like a super fun conversation. I think we've like went over time. So like I'm really excited to talk to you and and catch up. It really feels like a decade has passed since the last time we
1: talked. It's nuts. It's It's, uh yeah, I mean I mean one year in crypto is like three years, so it's been an insane amount of time.
0: Yeah right on well thank you so much for coming on the show
1: yeah thanks for having me this is really fun